Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. And a good friend of ours just texted me. He's listening to the show. He said, I love the idea of an Anna that drives a Lamborghini, but also still drives over to the Costco parking lot to pick up a 12-pack of muffins and then parks all the way over by the empty PetSmart just to make sure the car doesn't get dinged. Yeah, that would be me. Very conscientious. 100%. <laughs> all right. <laughs> J.J. Burden, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver, joins us. Chiefs Niners on Sunday at the Super Bowl. JJ, how you doing? I'm doing good, John. How you guys doing up there? We're well. We're well. We were just talking about a story. The Georgia quarterback got a $273,000 Lamborghini with his NIL money. Um, long way from JJ Burden's college days, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, being a two-sport athlete at Oregon, I would have loved some of that NIL money. <laughs> That's right. You think like give me like when you talk to athletes of your era college guys pro guys that you played with you know what do you guys talk about when it comes to nil oh just how much they got it wrong i mean we all feel that college athletes should be paid something i we all felt that but i just i wish they could have got this more fair you know it's a little bit crazy now like i think they've created this monster and we're just hoping they can figure out how to get it under control because it's really just a facet of college game that's not real positive right now yeah and i think uh you know they're trying to get it back on the rails but it's like putting the toothpaste back in the tube at some point um you got a super bowl this week chiefs are in it your phone has to light up when and you know the chiefs are around a big game like this it's been several seasons uh, how are you feeling about sunday's game feeling pretty good feeling pretty good you know i'm just so impressed with what the chiefs have accomplished the last you know five six years and just Seeing him in the Super Bowl again, I'm just I'm feeling confident that the experience is really going to take over like it has the last couple of games in the playoff. Yeah, I think we saw that right in in Baltimore, and certainly uh, as you know, Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. Give us an idea how valuable that is. Big game experience, and you know you played a long time in the league. How how much does that experience help a team in a week like this? It makes a big difference because when you got guys who've been there, done that, you know, Patrick, you got Travis, obviously even the coach too, those guys know how to prepare the newer guys, prepare the younger guys, and help them understand what it's going to take to maintain your composer, composure but still raise your level of play in this big game. And so when you're – you know, when you're in the huddle and you can look over and see, it's kind of like what I used to do with Joe Montana. You look over and you see a guy that has been there, done that. It just kind of calms you. It gives you that confidence to know that you just got to do your job because he's going to do his job. Give us an idea. You know, we talked to Mike Walter, former 49er earlier. He was sort of recounting, you know, Montana in that great Super Bowl drive, 92 yards to win the game. And, you know, you got a chance to get him when he went to Kansas City. What was that experience like for you just in general? Well, just a couple. One, it was a little shocking. You know, one minute you're watching Joe Montana in the eighth grade and he's throwing touchdown passes. Next thing you know, he's in the huddle with you. So I had to kind of get over that. 
But then there was the other part where I've always considered myself a learner. I'm like, success leaves clues. What can I learn from him? And just the two years I played with him, I was just so impressed with his his professionalism, his pre- preparedness, his his execution, and then just his ability to stay calm in those critical moments of the game. And it really made a difference on my career as well as our teammates too. And I always tell everyone the thing that impressed me the most about him was he wasn't arrogant, he wasn't cocky, he came in and he just he studied like a rookie, he prepared like a veteran, and he led like a pro, just a consummate leader. J.J. Burton, former University of Oregon wide receiver, nine seasons in the NFL with the Chiefs and the Falcons. Uh, you graduate from Lake Ridge, Lake Ridge High School in Lake Oswego. You had to weigh how much graduating your senior season? What, did, what playing weight were you in high school? I was 5'9", 133 pounds. 133 pounds. If I had to come to you and said, hey, you're going to play in the NFL, you're going to play a long time, J.J., I mean, you, would you have believed me? Oh, I would have thought you were crazy. I mean, my uncle, Sonny, who lives there in Portland, Oregon, that's what he said to me after a Lakers game. I said, Uncle, you're nuts. You know, but he, he made me promise him my first touchdown pass. I thought he was crazy. And sure enough, he got it. <laughs> he gets it. You go to college at Oregon, two-sports star. You mentioned track and field, football. You were not offered a football scholarship out of the gate, but you stayed with it. What made you stay with football? I think, you know, for me, I've always been the underdog. And when someone tells me I can't do something, that's enough to motivate to pr- me to prove them wrong. And Oregon was the only D1 college track-wise because I had got a lot of offers because I went pretty far my senior year. But they were the only one tra- only track program did not think it was a crazy idea for me to try to walk on one year. And Coach Bill Dillinger and John Gillespie said, hey, run for us. And if you can convince Coach Brooks the second year, you got our blessing. And, and I just wanted an opportunity to prove Coach Brooks and the Ducks that I could play D1 football. You, you worked so hard. You, get, you, know, you go to the combine. The, uh, Marty Schottenheimer likes what he sees, takes you with the 261st pick. You have a knee injury that costs you a chance to be a, you know, an Olympic sprinter. Then you get cut. And you get offers, you know, you're on the practice squad in Dallas. In those moments, J.J., you know, people don't talk about that. They want to talk about the touchdowns and everything that came after. But in those moments, those are there's victories in there somewhere. What made you stay with it? I think the main thing, John, was once I got a taste of it, because sitting on the Cleveland Browns injured reserve for a whole year, I got to evaluate the talent. I got to compare myself. So I reached the conclusion that I could play. Now it was just a matter of getting healthy because of the knee and then getting in the right situation. So that's why that third year when I chose the Chiefs over several other teams, I felt that Marty, the Chiefs, they lacked speed. I felt this was the perfect fit for me because I knew the time was clicking that if I don't make it this year, then I'm probably not going to get another shot. Final game of the 91 season, eight catches, 188 yards, two touchdowns. Um, did your uncle get one of the game – did he get the touchdown ball? <laughs> no, he got the one in Seattle, the first touchdown in Seattle <laughs> at the Kingdom. But that game was very special. That was the one that changed my career because that was my fourth year. I wasn't playing much. They had drafted a couple of wide receivers, but I worked really hard every day. And the last game of the season, Marty said, we're going to give you a shot. And I think it was their kind of – taking the time to really evaluate me. Are we going to keep this guy or not? And 
And I took advantage of it. And the very next week, Marty calls me in his office, and I think I'm in trouble. He says, how would you like to be a starter in the NFL? And I'm like, what? I was just trying to stay on the roster. (laughs) But I started the remaining five years of my career after that game. Yeah, and you go 40 of the next 45 games with the Chiefs. All 22 games you start, you play with the Falcons before retiring. What made you know? Did you know the retirement was coming, or do you wake up over several weeks and you know you make the decision? You know, or did you did you know that you were going to retire when you when you when you hung it up? I think that was a kind of a unique situation because John, I never expected to play in the NFL. That I wasn't the kid who dreamed about the NFL. And all of a sudden you get there and you're like, okay, let me see if I can play four years. That's when you qualify for your pension. Then it was year after year. And then when I got to year nine, I had hurt my knee. And after I got healthy, I thought, you know what? You didn't expect to play. You got to play nine years in the NFL and you're relatively healthy. Let's walk away from the game while we can. And I was more interested about life after football, making that transition. Yeah. I want to talk about that. I had, you know, one of the, um, one of the, an athletic department sta- uh, staff member at Stanford saw my tweet about mm-hmm. having you on the show, and he said he's such a great story. He's done so much after football. Um, let's start with the family part. Three kids, five adopted children. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. In 2007, my wife and I, Raina, we, we took in our five nieces and nephews who were going to be placed in five separate foster homes. They lived in Tulsa and you know, you just, it's like football. You, you call an audible, you make a decision, and we went for it. So, we, yeah, we raised them all. You did You did a good thing. You and your wife did a good thing. And, you know, that that's a family of eight. You know, yeah, there are challenges there. I, I, I talked to uh, Alex Molden, who's got, uh, you know, that many kids himself. But uh, that that's quite that's quite a commitment. How are, how are all the kids doing? They're all doing well. You know, unfortunately, they're all out of the house now. <laughs> We're empty nesters, <laughs> but they're all kind of doing their own thing. And, and uh, you know, my wife right now, we did our best to raise them and give them a, a good start. Um, we've got a couple of grandchildren now, so I'm grandpops, and my wife is Nana, so we're enjoying that phase of our life now. J.J. Burden with us, uh, former Kansas City Chief wide receiver. Um, after football, it's, you know, motivational speaking, you're a trainer, team building seminars, youth group life skills development, um, you worked with uh, health and wellness products. You know, did you know all along, like, hey, I, I better be ready after my career, or how do you hit the ground running? Yeah, it was more like, I want to make sure I'm ready. I, I always thought to myself, I don't want to be that story of the the athlete who, you know, when the career's over, they lose everything and they're lost. But I was always planning for life after the game, like in year four and year five and networking. And I remember when I retired, because I was battling between, do I want to be an entrepreneur or do I want to be a coach? And I coached some in track in, in Lee Summit, Missouri. I coached at Lakers. I coached at Tiger. I ran a camp. And then I realized that if I wanted to coach, I probably wanted to coach at the NFL level, but I didn't like the, you know, the coach's schedule. So I said, we're not going that route. You know, then I focused more on business. And then one day, John, someone told me, they said, you know what? You might be the lightest player in the last 30, 40 years who's played as long as you have. He said, I don't know if there's anyone who's played longer than you that weighed 157 pounds. And that day I thought, you know what? There's probably a lot of people out there that could learn from what I went through to reach the NFL level 
And that's when I became a professional speaker and, and just teaching the masses lessons that I learned and how it applies to them and helping them achieve their goals. And I think there, you know, there obviously there are people, there are kids who grow up thinking, I'm going to play in the NFL, and they don't know less than one percent of college football players who are draft eligible get picked. Like it's it's a funnel that is like threading a needle, and right. you you walk through that. But are there life lessons that regular folks, civilians, can learn that you picked up in football and on your journey? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think. A couple of them I like to share is the importance of mindset because how you think, what you think, it matters in anything you do. And in sports, you know how important it is. You've got to have your mind right, your mental skills right. And that affects people in just everyday life, whether it's a, a husband, a wife, uh, you know, a parent, whoever, going for a new job. So mindset is so important. And then I always like to share with people that no matter what the goal is, you've got to be willing to do the work. You've got to be willing to do the work. So many people want success, so many people want achievement, but not everybody's willing to do the work. And that's what I learned when I got to the NFL because everybody was a great athlete. You know, so it was me putting in that work from day to day, working on the fundamentals, working on the basics. That was that 1% difference that really made a difference. So, yeah, I try to relate what I learn and apply it to everyday life because I think it's a, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of crossover there. How can being an underdog help somebody? Oh, man. This is what I learned. Being an underdog, it gives you a stealth opportunity to win because people don't see underdogs coming. And underdogs are usually willing to go the extra mile. They're willing to do something a little extra to prove someone that they're capable and they're able to do it. Case in point, my fourth year, third year when I signed with the Chiefs, most wide receivers will come and they learn one position, the X or Z. I went in that third year and learned X, H, Z, and Y because I thought the more chances I have to be on the field, the more opportunities I have for helping them see me, not as an underdog, but a top dog. But that's why I made the Chiefs because I was used well everywhere all over the field. And that's what underdogs do. They will go the extra mile to do what it takes to prove people wrong. Do you tell the coaches when you're going into that camp that, hey, I've I've learned every position, or when do they find out that you've done the work? Good question. Well, first, I, I ran a 4-3-3, so I had to catch their attention right away because I was the free agent kind of just there. And then after that, when you're in meetings and you're sitting there paying attention and you're in practice and, oh, shoot, H is hurt, who can come in for H? You raise your hand. I go in there. They're like, oh, he knows H. The Y gets hurt. Who can do what? I got it. Then I go in there, and all of a sudden, they're sitting there thinking, like, wait a minute, okay, so in the preseason game, if this guy gets hurt, we can just move J.J. there. That guy gets hurt, and that's how they were using me that preseason game. And all of a sudden, I went from being a little guy who's a liability, hey, this is an asset. We could use him. And that's really how I, that, I made that team that year. And that's why, you know, when I'm in the press box, J.J., people will say, Oh, that player was really lucky to get an opportunity. I go, nah, that 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 player put. There's a lot of work and a lot of sweat and a lot of, you know, late night film sessions and yeah. intention that goes behind it that nobody ever sees. Right, and, and not even and even before that, John, you have these guys. They create the opportunity. Because think about it. I go to Oregon. I wouldn't bug Brooks. He didn't bug me. I begged him to let me walk on. 
So I created that opportunity. Once he opened the door, then I had to show him I was worthy of being there. So I think it's a two-fold situation. You got to create the create the opportunity, but when you get it, you got to maximize it, and you got to make sure you stand above everybody else. I got to ask you. You know, we were talking to Mike Walter earlier. You you played against some fierce defensive backs. When you go five ten. 157, and you got Kenny Easley or Ronnie Lott out there. Those guys trash talk you, or, or uh, what kind of what kind of discussion was going on on the field? Oh, they were trash talking me so much because they're looking at me like, little Robbie, see, you ain't coming over here. Don't even try to come in here. But see, I already know they're going to do that. So any chance I got when we're running a ball, we're running a route or a running route, a running play to Christian Okoya, I would go out there and cut Ronnie Lott's leg. I'd take him down low, and he hated me. And then anytime he tried to bump me or press me, I run a 4-3, so I know how to get by him. So I would frustrate these guys. So they would wait for their opportunities when they could catch me over the middle catching a ball. So, And I think they probably weren't used to. There's there's some ways you can use that size as an advantage, right? Like there's not a lot oh, yeah. for them to jam when you're running a 4-3 and you're, you weigh 157. Yeah, see, that's what I learned because my first year in Cleveland, I remember I got jammed up by Hanford Dixon, and he threw me on the ground, and he's like, you know, four, six, four, seven. But I realized that I need to figure out how to use my speed as a competitive advantage to beat man-to-man, and, and I worked on that job so much. And that's one of the reasons why I played as long as I could, because I did, because they struggled with me and bumping around. They couldn't get their hands on me, you know. Now, when, when I played against Deion Sanders, that was something different. Because I could beat him on the line, but he would come and get me. I mean, he was the one that could run me down. His speed was pretty amazing. Yeah, I bet he trash-talked, too. Oh, yeah, he did. He trash-talked me so much when we played him that I intentionally did not speak to him. In the fourth quarter, he begged me, dude, say something. <laughs> I just laughed at him. Cause <laughs> I was like, I'm not saying anything to you because I know your strategy. You're not getting in my head. <laughs> I love that. J.J. Burden, all right, big Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, Mike Walter picked the Niners. Your prediction for the game? Chiefs 31, Niners 24. You you having a party? Where are you watching the game? Well, we're going to stay home. My wife and I, are we're not Vegas fans. We think it's just going to be too crazy, so we're going to watch it at home with the family here in Phoenix. That's what Walter's doing, too. He said he didn't want it the scene. He's going to be at his daughter's house. He's going to watch it nice and quietly. So I love it. Thank you for joining us. We'll get you back on. And for people who are interested, jjburden.com, if you want to check out his uh, his book and his speaking and some videos, it's, uh, it's a really cool site. You can learn more about what J.J.'s doing after football. J.J. Burden, thank you. Thanks, John. Appreciate you. There he is. Really good stuff. Anna, what do you think of that? What do you think of that interview? I love his message. I love it. And it's so applicable. I mean, I can see why he's hired as a speaker to various audiences, corporate audiences, because it's applicable to all of us. It's like, do more to put yourself in a position at whatever entity that you want to be successful at. Like, make yourself indispensable by learning the spectrum of needs that that organization needs, and suddenly you're you're moving up. We, I think we look sometimes at athletes – professional athletes and we think things come easy for them and jj burden is really fast right he's Mm -hmm. quick and he's fast he's got good feet and you think gosh you know he makes it look easy by the time he's in his eighth or ninth year in the league yeah but what you don't see um you know it would have been really easy for jj burden not to play football 
not to bug Rich Brooks at Oregon and say, I want to play and walk on and go through not playing early in his college career. Would have been easy for him to give up early in his pro career and not play. There were multiple opportunities for J.J. to do the easy thing. He never did. He did, uh, you know, he did the hard thing and and saw it through, and he and he ended up in a better position because of it. That's super inspiring. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Great interviews today on the show. Jake Dickert, Washington State football coach, joined us in hour number one. He talked about the uh, changing landscape. Thought it was interesting what he talked about. You know, he recruited and signed twenty three high school seniors in his recruiting class. He did not do what everybody else is doing and get into the portal and try to live in the portal. I think it's a definite strategy at Washington State. Listen to that interview with Jake Dickert, Washington State coach. Uh, it's part of the podcast. You should already be subscribed to the podcast if you listen to the show. You can grab that. Uh, in hour two, Mike Walter, three-time Super Bowl champion with the San Francisco 49ers, joined us. Fantastic memories of three different Super Bowl experiences uh, with uh, you know Bill Walsh in the first two as his head coach and George Seifert in his third Super Bowl. Mike Walter was fantastic. Grab that interview. Loved the uh, loved the story. He intercepted a pass in the third Super Bowl, picking off John Elway. Got the game ball, and on the side of the ball they said Mike Walter, Super Bowl interception, two yard interception, because <laughs> he got the ball and was immediately tackled. Yeah, why not just put interception on the side of the ball? Two-yard interception. But Mike Walter, uh, former Oregon Duck, joined us, grabbed the podcast. And then J.J. Burden, you just heard him, was fantastic uh, talking about uh, his experience in sports. And uh, uh, ESPN, some news today. ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery announced plans to launch a sports streaming platform in the fall. They will include offerings from at least 15 networks, all four major professional sports leagues. It's a one-stop app to view a bunch of sports. Fans are excited about this, trying to figure out what it means. You know, everybody's trying to navigate, you know, a bunch of different services, subscribing to a bunch of different things. It appears as though ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers are going to try to put together a one-stop shop. Um, They'll share ownership, one-third each, in the joint venture. Uh, name for the surface and pricing will be announced later. It's uh, innovative. It'll uh, include NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, WNBA, NASCAR, college sports, men's and women's NCAA tournament games, golf, tennis, and some World Cup matches. And I'm, I, I can't help but think about the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors who said, we're too early to streaming. Uh this is so painful. Like, I'm happy for sports fans. Of course, it depends on how much it's going to cost to subscribe to this streaming service and if it's going to be at a price point that, you know, most of us can afford because that's my concern. Like, how much are they going to charge for this Disneyland of sports viewing? Um, but, yeah, it wasn't too soon for the Pac-12, was no. it? It really wasn't too soon. They needed their eyes on the horizon and they had their eyes either behind them or staring at their feet. I think they were also a little bit scarred because keep in mind the Pac-12 network was promised to them to deliver all of this exposure and all of this revenue and they got conditioned over a decade to not believe in the promise of innovation, 
the promise of fortune. Like they were almost conditioned to the point where like they needed to see concrete numbers, not buy on speculation, not buy like on the idea that people would subscribe. They needed to see a concrete number, and I think it really hurt them. No, I think just the opposite. I think they had plenty of evidence over a decade that the Pac-12 network, albeit a good product, wasn't working and that it really limited the access for people to be able to view stuff. So I think they had all the evidence in front of them. Anybody that was on that board for more than a few years, I mean, there were a lot of newcomers. That may have been part of the problem. But they, I think they had all of the evidence in front of them that said, this didn't work. We should try something new and seize the future. And I think that they, but they thought they were doing something new with the network. They were going to own and operate their own network. It was very bold. It didn't work out. And I think they were kind of regressing going, let's just go back to linear TV. No, but see, that's where, that's the difference between successful organizations and ones that fail, is you have to be able to assess when something is going down and you are bleeding, and you have to be able to pivot and and take another risk towards something that might be successful. And you get a lot of businesses that just get stuck in their ways, and they're not able to kind of see that the industry has changed, the landscape has changed, the calculus has changed, and they just keep trying to do what they've done for years and years and years, and they're not really seeing that, like, you know, hey, uh, you know, hey, Yo, open your eyes. Um, there's a new world out there, but you know it looks like college sports and pro sports, ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery launched this platform. It's going to be similar to what Hulu did in 2008 when Hulu said, all right, we're going to bundle together all these things and make one product. They're now going to do it for sports. So It's going to be wildly successful. Yeah. If they price it right, they're going to have they're going to have massive. It's success. going to be like a food court with all the sports Correct. part of it. Right. You know, who doesn't like to go to the food court? A buffet of sports. Get a Cinnabon? <laughs> get a Jamba? Because right now, as a as a viewing fan, how aggravating is it to try and figure out where something is airing and then to, like, toggle through all your different I did it last, I did the other subscription night. services to figure out where to see it? I do it every week. <laughs> we interrupt this podcast with a special announcement from the Baltimore. Hey, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but... If you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.